You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hey guys, and welcome to today's uh, Pinocchio-themed episode of The Myth Pilgrim. I'm always grateful to have your company as we explore great stories and great themes um, that these stories evoke about our beautiful Catholic tradition and and teaching. Today's topic on Pinocchio, and particularly uh, the conscience, is actually something I've been sitting on, an episode I've been sitting on and sort of percolating on for a very long time because... It is a very big topic. Uh, I would say it's topical in the sense that it's very relevant um, more and more around um, about the way it's misunderstood uh, in the church. Particularly, it's been brought up with COVID and mandatory, you know, X, Y, and Z, mask wearing and vaccines and stuff. It's brought up all sorts of uh, flaws and cracks in the way general uh, the Catholic culture and also the secular world, the media, understands uh, the idea of conscience and what it means to follow one's conscience. I think the default understanding of conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to. That it's sort of like um, Jiminy Cricket, a little voice or a personal conviction about whether something is right or wrong. Something we are obligated to follow and ultimately uh, no one can tell us otherwise. Now, while this is partially true, this is only half the story because I'm going to posit right from the start that in the Catholic understanding, conscience is something that can be formed and nourished by the church's teaching. Our consciences are not purely subjective. They are to be shaped by the church's objective teaching in a way that complements our human free will. Hmm. <laughs> like, what? How does this work? Good. So hopefully today we'll be uh, tiptoeing into some of those questions um, while using um, the story, the, the kind of timeless story of Pinocchio as a bit of a backbone and inspiration as well. But first, let's begin by summarizing the story. So the story of Pinocchio starts with the character of Geppetto, who's an old man. Um, he's a puppet maker, like a carpenter sort of figure, makes toys and stuff. A uh, virtuous man, um, and one night, you know, on seeing a wishing star in the night, um, he makes a wish to the star um, that he would have a son, that there would be someone he could, um, he could father in his old age and to love. And seeing his good heart while he's asleep, the blue fairy comes into his house and blesses one of the puppets, uh, kind of the wooden puppets that's sitting um, kind of on his carpenter bench. And, you know, the puppet's name is Pinocchio, and so Pinocchio comes to life. Um, by come to life, I don't mean he becomes a full human. Uh, he's merely, he's still string, he's still like um, wooden parts and joints and stuff like that. Um, but then the blue fairy explains to him, uh, for you to become a real boy, like a flesh and blood human, you will have to prove that you are brave, truthful, and unselfish. And that if you could do this, then one day you will become a real boy. Hmm. She explains to him that he will have to choose between right and wrong. And when Pinocchio asks, well, how will I know know what's right and wrong? Um, It's at that point that Jiminy Cricket, who happens to be nearby and sort of in the house, and he's the one that starts the movie off singing, when you wish upon a star, and (laughs) all that. Um, Yes, so... Jiminy Cricket appears and, and the Blue Fairy actually then kind of 
um, blesses Jiminy Cricket to be Pinocchio's conscience, to be that voice of guidance and reason to help Pinocchio make um, decisions about right and wrong so that he can prove to be brave, truthful and unselfish and therefore become a real boy. So that's that's sort of how the story's set up. So, However, temptation soon hits and on the way to school he bangs into a sly character, a fox named Honest John and his sidekick um, Gideon who ultimately convinces Pinocchio if you want to be the star, if you want to succeed in life, you don't need to you know, go to school and learn and be go through all that boring stuff and be virtuous, you can just join Stromboli's puppet show. And so Stromboli is this dodgy character who um, pretty much uh, runs, is a greedy kind of money-grubbing sort of character who, yes, takes uh, Pinocchio into his show and Pinocchio makes him a lot of money because he's a real puppet that can sing and dance as well as, you know, rather than just being pulled by strings and stuff. And he becomes this sort of false father figure for Pinocchio, you know, pretending to, you know, care for him and make him a star and make him famous and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, you know, Pinocchio realises that he's actually a bad man and Stromboli one night you know locks Pinocchio up in like a cage almost like a bird cage it's his dignity you know he's kind of been robbed from him so all this time Jiminy Cricket had tried to warn Pinocchio and, and even got a little bit mad at him for not listening to him as in Jiminy Cricket um, about you know trying to bypass the life of virtue and honesty um, but at this point uh, in kind of this low moment uh, the blue fairy um, reappears to Pinocchio and asks him you know what happened you know how did you end up in this cage and Pinocchio starts to tell a lie to kind of cover up the fact that he's um, been acting against his conscience against the cricket and as he tells as famously you know Pinocchio is known for as he tells each lie his nose grows longer and longer and longer and at some point the nose gets so long that it becomes very very humorously cumbersome and at that point he sort of repents and realizes his folly Um, and the blue fairy in an act of mercy uh, and an act of grace kind of blesses him and his nose goes back to normal and, and Pinocchio is free. He gets, gets set free from the cage. And on his way back to Geppetto to become a good son, to live a virtuous life again, he bangs into Honest John and Gideon again. And they, this time they convince him to join um, this kind of this, this evil coachman uh, to go to this place called Pleasure Island, you know, where you know, they have all the luxuries and, and you know, cigars and, and alcohol and games and pool and all these fun things for for boys to just enjoy themselves. Ultimately, when he gets to this kind of amusement park island thing, it really is a land of sin and gluttony. And, and all this time, Jiminy Cricket's like, don't do this. This is not the path the Blue Fairy set for you. You know, follow me, listen to me. And Pinocchio ignores him. And, but what Pinocchio doesn't realise is this, this pleasure island, this amusement park is actually cursed in the sense that the more the boys there fall into you know, self-indulgence and sin and vices, the more animalistic they become. Like, literally, they become donkeys. Um, you know, they grow ears, they grow, you know, like they start braying like a donkey and they grow a tail. And by the time Pinocchio realises, he's actually grown donkey ears and a tail as well. Then he realises again, with the cricket's help, you know, something's not right and they escape. So then Pinocchio runs home to Geppetto and says, you know, father, I'm home and everything. And then realises that, um, as it turns out, Geppetto isn't home. And they, there's a letter from the Blue Fairy telling Pinocchio that because Geppetto's heart was yearning for his son, his lost son, and went out looking for him, he actually got swallowed by a whale looking for him, Pinocchio. And Pinocchio is moved then and there to to go out and search for his lost father, the father who had been swallowed up by a whale, as can only happen in a fairy tale like this. So fast forward a little bit, they find the whale, his name's Monstro, and through Pinocchio's ingeniousness with smoke and everything, um, they, him and his father are able to escape from the belly of the whale together. But in doing so, Pinocchio actually risked his life um, to love and to honour his love for his father, and ultimately he does die, he drowns in the process, which is quite sad. So the distraught um, Geppetto then brings a lifeless um, Pinocchio back home and, and lays him sort of on, on a bed, sort of like a deathbed vigil and starts kind of weeping and, and begins praying, I guess. And, and then the Blue Fairy um, 
shows up again, or at least the voice, the spirit of the blue fairy. You hear her say, you know, um, Pinocchio has proven himself to be brave, truthful, and unselfish by by exercising virtue and by laying down his life for another, by, by learning to love finally, um, in this case Geppetto, he will be rewarded and blessed to become a real boy. So then with a dash of magic, um, the Blue Fairy not only resurrects Pinocchio, um, you know, to get him animated and talking again, but actually transforms him, his resurrected self, into a real flesh and blood boy. So at the end, in this moment of greater despair, um, through the resurrection moment, um, Pinocchio becomes a real boy and they lived happily ever after. Amen. Okay, so that's the story in summary. At this point, uh, it might be good to pause a little bit and to reflect on the fact that us, all of us human beings, you and I, are actually all Pinocchio. It's actually our story because <laughs> we are also, um, you know, given the gift of life. We're animated uh, in some ways by the spirit, you know, given a rational mind to be able to choose. Um, but depending on how we use our choice, we can become fully human, fully alive, um, fully Christ-like. You know, that would be the full expression of our humanity, um, to be a saint, ultimately. Um, or if we choose um, unwisely, we become um, a bit like when Pinocchio goes to Pleasure Isle, more and more beast-like, animalistic, um, barely able to exercise our rationality, our minds, to be able to actualize the potential that we actually have. So we are all Pinocchio in this lifetime, that we get to choose. Now, this will become really important when we begin to explore conscience because conscience is not just merely a feeling or an intuition or a gut sort of instinct. It involves very much the mind, the rationality, knowledge, okay? Um, And how we use that and how we actualize that in our circumstances to discern good and evil and all that um, becomes very central. Now, in order for us to determine uh, what it takes for us to become fully Christ-like, to be fully human, involves a, a, at least from a, I'm going to put on a bit of a philosophy hat here, involves, first of all, asking what does it, what actually makes something good and what makes something evil, what makes something right, what makes something wrong. And this is where the philosophy comes in, is you cannot answer that question unless you first answer the, what is the ultimate purpose of something or someone. You know, let's use a a trivial example, let's say a clock. Um, In what sense can I say that this clock here is good, is a good clock? I could use many criteria. I could say, well, it's it's very beautiful, it's aesthetic. Look at that beautiful mahogany finish, you know, the the precision of of each of the numbers, you know, kind of the gold plates on, on each of the face of the clock. You know, you can kind of say, well, in that sense, it's a good clock, therefore, because it's beautiful. Then I could also say it's a good clock in the sense that it's good for being a paperweight. I'm just looking at an actual literal clock on my desk, which is heavy enough to be able to hold my big textbooks open for theology to kind of stop the book from snapping shut again. You know, it's good. It's a good clock, right? Because it's, it's, I determine good by it being heavy enough to open, keep the pages of a Thomas Aquinas book open. Now, kind of like, what are you talking about, Lawrence? A clock Goodness is determined by whether it can keep the time, whether it's accurate to keeping the time and help keeping us on schedule and everything. And of course, you're right. But you see the point. I can only answer whether a clock is good by first asking, by what criteria do you determine whether or not this clock is actually good? So it goes with the human person. To answer what action is morally in line with our conscience, how our conscience informs our decisions to determine what's good and evil, etc., etc., is to first ask, what is a human person for? 
what makes a human person good deter- is determined by the extent that that action, that decision, that whatever it is we're making, is in conformity to the ultimate purpose of which we were made. Now, let's presume for a moment that to be good, the human person's ultimate aim is to become Christ-like. Right, So we are not the model human beings. Sorry to say, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Christ is the ultimate model human being. He is one who is fully alive. Um, he demonstrates the, the destiny awaiting each of us. You know, A person who is fully alive is in full alignment with God's will, who's in love with the Father, who's in union with, with his story. Um, you know, A person who's fully alive, looking at Christ's example, is one who loves perfectly, uh, especially those without dignity, without anyone any way to pay him back, you know, and especially love for enemies. Okay, so we look at these criteria, you know, ultimately, to be our ultimate end, <laughs> inverted commas in terms of philosophy language, our ultimate goal is to become Christ-like, to become saints. So the conscience then might be understood as the part of us or the faculty that God gives every person that works to ensure that we act according to the good. Um, the conscience is always attracted to the good and and sort of repulsive of the bad. And it's something, as the conscience, is something that God gives and has given every single person, regardless of whether they explicitly know him or not. And hence, you know, you probably hear even in the secular world, people sort of recognize that there is a sacredness about the conscience and, and violating uh, the conscience. Because like, say, for example, that moment when Pinocchio gets locked up in Stromboli's cage, he, he's clearly ignored the voice of his conscience, even though... Jiminy Cricket and jabbering away kind of, you know. But ultimately, even in the cage, in his desolation, Pinocchio cannot escape the, the ultimate moral authority in the Pinocchio universe, the Blue Fairy, who asks him, ultimately, how did you end up in, in here? And have you been telling the truth? Have you been actualizing your dignity? And this is the famous scene, for those of you who remember, where Pinocchio's nose grows longer and longer, which each lie that he tries to tell in order to try and cover up the fact that he has not been following his conscience. I find this scene a simple but really profound uh, as an illustration of what happens when we think we can escape the voice of our conscience, especially a guilty one. As Bishop Fulton Sheen reminds us over and over again, our culture has sort of masked the concept of sin and a guilty conscience with all sorts of mental health um, diagnoses and psychosis and medication and labels, while all the time we are wondering why our proverbial nose gets longer and more clumsy and more cumbersome. See, we may think we can ignore the pangs of our conscience, but this Pinocchio scene reveals clearly and definitively that we can never escape the ultimate authority and author of our conscience, God himself, or in the Pinocchio world, the Blue Fairy. Okay, now, important. Conscience is a type of knowledge. It is rational. It is not just a feeling. Okay, even in if we look at the word uh, conscience, the word itself, the, the etymology of the word conscientia means with knowledge. So therefore, conscience is not merely me acting out of what I feel to be right and wrong, you know, that suits my understanding of moral right and moral evil, but to act with knowledge. Again, the Catechism says, conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that they are about to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. In all the person says and does, we are obliged to follow faithfully what we know to be just and right. Now, if conscience is a judgment of reason, uh, more than a feeling or an intuition or a preference, then it also follows that the conscience can actually be malformed, can actually... 
um, make a bad judgment, right? So, for example, based on misinformation or bad information about um, about the diagnosis or the prognosis of a health uh, situation and and the effects of that, a person, a family, a loved one could make a bad decision because conscience hasn't been adequately formed, or the data that's feeding into determining whether something is good or bad has been misunderstood, and therefore. The church teaches very, very clearly that it is essential that every Catholic actively is forming their conscience and allowing it to be formed by ultimately the teaching authority of the church. Remember how I um, said earlier that our typical understanding of conscience kind of defaults to something like a Jiminy Cricket, you know, that still small voice within? Well, let's not forget from what authority Jiminy Cricket gets his moral authority from. The ultimate moral authority in the Pinocchio world is not Jiminy Cricket, but the Blue Fairy. Now, I'm going to posit that this is a useful parallel for the Catholic understanding of conscience. Uh, This is because our individual consciences are also to be formed and shaped by a teaching authority that is bigger than itself. I refer here, of course, to the teaching authority of the Church. And church teaching is no authority to be sneezed at, for the church was willed by Christ, and it is continually inspired by his spirit, whose teaching will continue to guide and update and nourish the faithful until Jesus comes again. Now, if we disagree on this point, that's fine. (laughs) That's for another conversation, perhaps outside this episode. But let's assume for now that, um, like the Blue Fairy in Pinocchio, the church has a rightful teaching authority. Um, Like, even if we personally disagree with individual decisions the church makes, the fact that the church has a teaching authority, willed by Christ, um, is pretty central for Catholics to hold and to believe. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. Okay, Lawrence, you've said we've all got a conscience and it's a judgment of reason. Well, how do we then inform and nourish it so that we can make the right decisions at the right time? How does our Jiminy Cricket, um, you know, have access to the Blue Fairy and, and the ultimate authority of the Blue Fairy? Well, firstly, as I've hinted at various points in this episode, the teaching authority of the church, um, the magisterium it's called. It is important that we try and familiarize ourselves and access teachings of the church like papal documents and official statements from the doctrine of faith and other authorities concerning Catholic social teaching and moral theology and things like that. And these days, these are sort of readily available to everyone. So certainly there would be um, people in your faith community who would know how to access them and can even walk you through them um, if they come across uh, a little bit um, jargony. A classic example where this hasn't been followed is this whole COVID business with both vaccinations and wearing masks and stuff. Because there's this implied belief amongst even the faithful that my human rights, my human dignity trumps everything else. That's the only criteria in which I determine whether something is moral. The church says yes and no. The church teaches that both human rights and the common good, the good of a society, are important measures for determining what is the most moral and good action to take. And in different contexts, based on sound discernment, the right to choose needs to give way to the greater common good or and sometimes the greater common good needs to give way to the human's right to choose. 
Okay. Now, Eusis is just one obvious example because it's sort of recent. Um, but many Catholics don't even consider the common good as something the church and ultimately Christ upholds as being important. They, they believe that my right to choose is the only and final measure of good. And this is an example of how the conscience can actually be formed so that using their judgment of reason be able to make a action that is morally, genuinely morally good. Now, I hear some of you asking, but what if after carefully looking and studying what the church teaches, I still conscientiously disagrees with what she teaches? A good question. Um, it'll suffice to say here that if, after having genuinely examined the content of church teaching and thoroughly examined sort of your own motives, and you still find yourself at odds with the teaching, then and only then are we as Catholics obliged to follow the dictates of our own conscience. This alone sort of demonstrates how the church is not trying to be a dictator or a moral police force, but rather still upholds and celebrates human free will. But the key criteria to doing this, though, is that you have actually done the research and made the best possible effort to form your conscience. And even in conscientiously disagreeing with the church, we should do so with a spirit of humility and teachability rather than dissent and division. Because only an attitude of humility can respect both the church's actual teaching authority while also respecting her protection of human free will. Okay, for more information about sort of what to do when you find yourselves at odds with church teaching, I've left a really good video, a short kind of 10-minute video by Father Casey on the Myth Pilgrim website and on the show notes. So if that's you, definitely, um, definitely I encourage you to check that out. The church suggests that there are many other ways to form our conscience aside from a sort of more direct, explicit church teaching. But because I think I'm running out of time, I will just briefly run through a list here for you. Definitely another big way to form your conscience is to familiarize um, yourself with the scriptures, saturate yourself in the word of God, especially, of course, the gospels and the example of Jesus himself. Another source could be talking to people, to wise teachers, especially people who have been on the faith journey a lot longer than you have, you know, experts in the field, etc., etc. Um, you can also look at the lives, the examples, the writings of the saints. They're obviously exemplar models of virtue uh, that the church recognizes. And of course, always making just a habit of reading the news, uh, especially uh, on positions that you otherwise have an aversion to or otherwise wouldn't um, accept readily, because uh, this helps us form a more objective view on many issues. And many issues, there are genuinely two sides, but often we need to discern context in order to decide what is the best moral good. So these are just some of the other ways we can form our conscience. And it is especially important for us because... The human heart alone, left alone, is quite devious, it's clouded, it's prone to sin. Hence, our catechism says, the education of conscience is indispensable for human beings who are subjected to negative influences and tempted by sin to prefer their own judgment and to reject authoritative teachings. But a well-formed conscience is upright and truthful. It formulates its judgments according to reason, in conformity with the true good willed by the wisdom of the Creator. Amen. Okay, so we've sort of arrived at the end of our episode. If you're still with me, God bless you. Thank you so much. And if you feel this episode has helped you in your walk, I would definitely encourage you to share this episode with your family and friends and communities um, that could also benefit from it. And as a final practical pilgrim reflection... I thought I'd avoid giving you something more heady and heavy. So it's simply to, it's a reflection question that you can uh, bring into your prayer. It's simply this. What is preventing me from becoming a saint? 
because this is the ultimate goal and end of our human existence, and will determine every other moral decision along the way. And so it's an essential question to ponder and to ask and to keep revisiting. Okay, all the best with that. Um, till next time, journey forth. Take care and God bless. <laughs>